Well, good morning, and uh, my thanks to Peter, the elders, and others who have uh, made me and others from BMS feel very welcome here this weekend, and it is, it is a great privilege to share in this special mission weekend and this particular day today as we focus on that theme. Um, I have a good number of friends here, and I hope never to make any enemies, and uh, I'm just grateful to be allowed to share in the service and in all that God is doing. Um, you're very odd here, which I should quickly try and redeem myself to say that these days in the work I do with uh, BMS World Mission, I, I, I mix a lot with people who are engaged whole time in mission work. And in all the conferences and all the events amongst all these missiologists, great name, um, they, 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 we talk about where is the gospel most prospering, where is the gospel least prospering. And always the answer to the least prospering is Europe. And if you really want to put somewhere also in your heart, because I do also, I share that burden for the Muslim world, but in terms of where the gospel is advancing least in the world, it's where we are. It's northern and western Europe. And that's why you're odd, because there's really quite a lot of you. And that's not typical, not normal. These days I... I guess I preach all up and down the whole of, of the UK, and this is unusual. And uh, I knew what I was coming to, I've been here a lot of times before, but uh, please pray for what is happening amongst the church in Europe, as I would encourage you to pray for, the, for God's work around the world. Let me play a quick little game, because I'm really not here to do a sales job on BMS, I want to read and preach from the scriptures in a second. But I'm well aware that lots of people don't even hardly know the initials BMS. I'll give you the answer to that question. It's Baptist Missionary Society. And its kind of claim to fame and the history of things is that it's the first society in the modern missionary movement. That doesn't mean that the first group ever to send any missionaries. That's not what the statement's about. But in terms of a modern movement. But please just... Do sh shout out. It's very rude, but you're allowed to this morning because I've said so. Um, does somebody know the date, the year, I mean, on... Well, you can give me the precise date and time of day if you want, but uh, the year in which BMS was founded. Oh. Anyone risk it? Because... Give me a guess. Inspiration. Prophetic word? 1792. So we're old. Um, because 1792, I mean, we were not much into French Revolution, and the days when stirrings were going on. Give me the name of the person who is normally held responsible for the founding of BMS. William Carey, well done, thank you very much. Who was probably an impossible man to work with, because these kind of entrepreneurial people usually are and in 1793, he sailed off to India, and he never came back. I mean, a lifetime commitment to mission. He went, he never came back. He could have come back, but, but he never did. And is unquestionably one of the most significant figures in the, uh, in, in the modern missionary movement. And the last one, and after the, um, the, the, the lack of guessing the day, I feel kind of safe with this one. You see, the, the, the next question, the last one, is, and what was the original name of the Baptist Missionary Society? Because it wasn't... Baptist Missionary Society. And I wonder if anyone would know that. And I'm now feeling scared because I haven't got it written down either. And it's more than three words. I could
could have made a donation to your mission funds if you got it right, you know. But my money was still slipped from my pocket because I have actually asked this question in a few places and no one's ever got it exactly right. The particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. Which was probably pretty snappy in 1792, but might have lost a bit over the years. The particular Baptist Society came and others came from amongst the Calvinistic Baptists. The particular Baptists. And without getting into the realms of all the kind of five points of Calvinism and so on, part of their doctrine was a very lofty sense of the sovereignty of God. God elected some to salvation. And it was God's choice. And there was nothing anyone else could do about it. And you can see the logical conclusion from that. That if it was all about God's choice, while you might long for the whole world to be saved, the reality was it was only God's choice. And therefore, in a sense, you couldn't do anything about it. And if you couldn't do anything about it, why evangelize? And Carey and some others had what, in posh terms today, we would call a paradigm shift. And he didn't undermine that doctrine at all. But he simply said that God's way of electing is through the preaching of the gospel. And God will gift eternal life to those to whom the gospel is preached. And so it was that he and others became missionaries and the work went forward. So he came from the particular Baptists. And the other part of the name, the particular Baptist Society, for propagating the gospel among the heathen, making Jesus known amongst those who do not know him, to put it in more respectable modern vocabulary. And that was the mission, and that is the mission of BMS. And these days it's in 40 countries, there are about 150 long-term serving missionaries who are sent from here to there, if I can put it that way, with BMS. There's about 150 per annum in shorter-term volunteer mode. And these days, as of the 1st of November, 132 who are missionaries who are serving with BMS support amongst their own peoples. And that's one of the exciting developments. We've been building that number up recently because these people know the language and they know the culture and they're incredibly effective in what they do, and they're part of the church, and it's great. And so God is doing good things. And I'm a great believer that the best days for any church, for a missionary society, ought to be the days ahead. What is this instinct in all of us that keeps wanting to look over our shoulders? I bought a couple of CDs recently, hits from the 1960s. And it was great to listen to the trogs. And, uh, you know, when Lulu was first around, uh, she's still around, but she was first around. And I remember my original cord velvet jacket and the knitted tie. And I don't think the flares came till the 70s, but you get these warm, fuzzy feelings looking back. Friends, God calls us to look forward. And I would long the best days for Charlotte Chapel are not any of the ones in the history thankful though I guess all of us are for those but may the things God is putting before you now and will do in the future be what in eternity is reckoned equally good and who knows even better and same permission work around the world there's a great history but hey there's a great challenge and a great task and may we be more effective in the future than anything that's ever been before that's my longing that's my prayer I want to kind of set some remarks on mission this morning in a, in, a, in a proper context from the Word of God. So, I've got 1 John chapter 4 and I, in front of me and I'm going to read from verse 7. 
1 John chapter 4 from verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. And this is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and His love is made complete in us. Amen. There are countless great truths in that passage. I'm only going to choose three, and two of them are about God, and one of them is about us. Number one, great truth. God is love. Verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And putting it simply, this is God's character. This is what God is like. He is love. When you want to know about the God that we as Christians worship, this is a way of describing God to anyone. What is God like? God is love. And that means He's not anything else. I get the job in the garden of what I think is referred to as hard landscaping. And that means anything has to be built or constructed. Uh, that's me. Because I'm not much good at pulling out weeds because I never know what's the weed, what's the plant. And it's a, quite a difficult, almost philosophical discussion to distinguish the two. So I don't do that kind of thing. But I build things occasionally. And we needed some compass bins because Alison, my wife, is into recycling anything. And that gives me hope I'll last a while. And uh, so compass bins had to be made and we got hold of some free pallets. And so I was trying to saw through these things and not getting very far till I got the electric saw out. And then I found it would go through the nice soft wood, because much of a pallet is made from soft pine, but it's, it's cheap wood, so there's lots of knots, and that's where I was getting stuck. Couldn't saw through it, but the electric saw would go through that. It would go through the hefty blocks that are used to hold the thing together. It would go easily through the slugs which had crept in amongst them, but we won't go there. And it would go through the nails, that were very long nails that are used to hold pallets together. And if I hadn't had the electric saw, I'd have been struggling. Because a pallet is not made of one kind of thing. It's inconsistent. It's made of lots of kind of things. What has been told here about God is that He is consistent. God is not many things. God is love. And from that basic statement, at least a couple of things need to sink deep in our hearts and souls today. First, it means if God is love, He's kind and He's good, and He's caring. And when you come to this God, that's what you are going to find. You're not going to find something else. You're not going to get a different kind of God. You're not going to meet someone with a different being, a different character, to the one that reflects kindness and goodness and care and compassion and mercy for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what kind of failures there may have been in your life, the God you will find is a God who loves you. Because He is a God who is love. 
we used to take our children swimming when they were when they were really young. And I always had the easier task because we had one son, three daughters in that sequence. And so by the time they were all around, our son was already several years old and it wasn't that difficult for me to help him get changed or, or dried off afterwards and so on. But Alison had all the girls and that was quite a lot of work. So typically I would be with our lad in the pool already waiting forever for them to come in. That's why it was on one particular day out at Broxburn Swimming Pool because we lived near there at that time. And uh, Alison was forever with the children. And I saw our youngest, Catherine, who was about two years of age at that time, sprint out of the changing area, ahead of all the rest, and with a huge amount of excitement on her face, a big smile, jumped straight into the pool. And she was used to doing that, because she wore these kind of little armband float things. And she'd bob around on the surface of the water, no problem. Except that day she'd run away from mother before the armbands were put on. So there she is, big smile on the face, jumping into the water, and I watched this from the other side of the pool, and I saw her for a moment come up back up to the surface wall, this big smile, and then the big smile rapidly disappearing, because she was rapidly disappearing, and the look turning to abject terror as she sank under the water. Now at that moment, I could have stayed where I was, on the other side of the pool, and thought, stupid child! What on earth is she being so rebellious and wicked and sinful as running away from her mother? Let her suffer for her own folly. But what kind of loving father could ever have done that? And of course, faster than the proverbial bullet from the gunners across that pool and dragging her back up to the surface and her screaming with panic and me trying to cuddle her and everyone thinking he's abusing that child but is actually saving her because love had to act like that love could never have done anything different and love will always from God react like that to you even though your mistakes are your mistakes and you carry responsibility, but He loves you. Because God is love. And it will never end. And that's the other thing I wanted to say. You won't find that God's batteries of love have run down. And the days come when there's no love left for you. I, I fly a lot in, in this job I have these days. And I was flying somewhere into Central Europe one day. And it's pretty boring flying. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you climb into a giant smarty tube and they kind of put the lid on, shake it around a bit and they take the lid off eventually. And hey, they've moved it while you were inside. This is flying. Anyway, it's, it's mundane stuff and I was coming down to land somewhere and it was one of these bumpy times to do that, especially to come through the clouds. I became aware that the woman next to me had white knuckles and uh, I was reading a book and she, she said to me, she said, it's, it's very bumpy, isn't it? And I said, yes. Well, we haven't been introduced, so I couldn't say more. And uh, she said, uh, are you not frightened? Nope. But she said, we're bouncing around all over the place. So I closed the book. And uh, I said, listen, let me explain to you about um, thick air and thin air. Oh, yes, she said. Oh, I said, yes. 
you see, I said, there is this kind of very kind of thick air, and the plane floats very easily, but every now and again it will hit a patch of thinner air, and it will sink a little bit until it hits some thick air. What if there's thin air all to the ground? I said, no, 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 no. That will never happen. I said, it's just patchy, you see, especially as you come through the clouds. And she said, really? I said, oh, yes. And we eventually found we were taxiing in to the terminal. She realized she was alive. She said, thank you very much. And off she went, very happy. Thick air and thin air, I'm actually not sure about. Hot air, I'm good at. And uh, I did eventually hear something that gave at least 10% credence to what I had said to that lady. felt quite encouraged by that. Her terror was that somehow or other the air that would hold the plane up might end. There would be no more of it. God's love will not end. He is love. If I can put this crudely and probably with no theological soundness to it, there's just nothing else there in God. Pure, complete love. And therefore you will not wake up one day and find that God has suddenly turned against you. That God's exhausted with bothering with you. God loves you because He loves you because He is love. And even if you don't actually remember anything else from today, know that about you. He loves you. He wants you. He loves this world. And He wants this world because He is love. And He has no feeling for anyone or any other part of the world than a feeling of love and compassion, care, and a desire for folks to come to know Him and experience that love. Second great truth about God, that He so loved us, he gave His Son for us. The slogan we used for the presentation that we did here last night is, Tears are not enough. And you could almost risk saying that about God. That His compassion for the world, His feeling sorry for the world, was for Him not enough. He had to do something. And so He did. And that's verses 9 and 10 in the passage. This is how God showed His love among us. That He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Even though we didn't deserve it. This is Romans 5, 8. Why will yet sinners Christ die for us? Written in a different way. Even though we didn't deserve it. Even though we failed Him. Because He is love, He did something for us. Grace. We find this whole thing of undeserved favor of God very difficult. And that's probably because we've all been brought up, we've all been raised on a logic, a mindset of rewards and punishments, kind of carrot and stick stuff. And as a child, I remember probably from around this time of year onwards, I was always told, you'd better be good. Because if you're not, Santa won't be bringing anything for you. And this was my parents' way of trying to introduce a modicum of righteousness into this rebellious, wretched child. That I was told that I would only get good things if I behaved in a good way. And we all kind of do this to our children or have had it done to us. If you don't tidy up your room, you won't get a biscuit. Or if you don't tell me, you will get something else. Reward or punishment. 
If you pass your exams, I'll buy you a bicycle. You've got to earn it. If you're going to get something good, you have to have merited it. Now, if you bring that logic into the realm of human relationships, it becomes dangerous. Because it means if you're not good looking, if you haven't got great social skills, wit and humor and rapport and so on, then no one's going to want to bother with you. It's the logic. And there are many who suffer from a kind of low self-esteem that assumes no one would ever really want to know them because they're not charming and witty and clever and bright and best-looking and so on. If you bring that logic into the whole realm of trying to know God, then in a sense it's even worse. Because the logic tells you, unless I'm good, God won't love me. And of course your own self-awareness says, actually I'm not good. I've done many things that are bad or wrong. Therefore God doesn't love me and will have nothing to do with me. But it's a logic predicated, based on this whole concept of reward and punishment, that somehow love must be earned, love must be won. And what is being taught here, please hear this, God's love does not have to be won. Because He is love, His love is freely given. Out of His heart comes love for you. That means whether or not you deserve it. And that means He loves you even when it hurts Him to give it. Our, our dog lived a pretty old age. Has now gone to be wherever dogs rest. And, uh, but lived till near 18 years of age. And I tell you in these latter years, was not in the best shape. Half blind, 90% deaf. And losing control in a department of his inner biology that does not merit description from this pulpit. But you get my meaning, and so on. One night, late on, I was letting Sally the dog out uh, for the call of nature to be as fulfilled as best was possible at that time. And for some reason, in the, it was dark. Um, some reason I hung around outdoors. Didn't usually, usually left the dog for five minutes and then let it back in and so on. But I hung around outdoors and suddenly heard a splash. Now the explanation for this is that while ground force builds a pond in a day, it took me five years. We won't go there. But anyway, suddenly there was water where there never for years had been water. And my half-blind, not terribly with it dog had not realized it could no longer go on a straight A to B route back to the back door. So, splash! So I rushed over, and in the little light that was available, could see this poor little creature struggling around in the middle of this pond. And there am I on my knees, getting dirty, trying to reach over, thinking, am I going to have to go in after this? Now, on the merit of the dog, 17 and a half years old, with not a lot to live, and half blind, half dead, and with other things not functioning as they should, it didn't merit it. So what do you do? Thankfully, I didn't need to do it. I got hold of it and dragged it out. But I'd have been in there. Because, gracious, our affection for the old muck did not rest on its abilities in any sense. And within the love and compassion of our hearts, either of us would have dived in there, shall we say, whatever the chill and the mess, to get a dog out. And that says nothing. And God loves us 
with a, God says this is precious and valuable. So much. He sent His Son. Do you want to know how much God loves you? So much. He gave away His Son to get you. We speak about the cross of Christ. There's a sense that's a misnomer. Because Jesus was innocent. But He hung on our cross. The cross of Alistair Brown or your name, whatever. That's who deserves to be there. But God, out of great love, let His Son hang on that cross in our place. God has loved you so much that at great cost, and with no deserving on your part, He gave away Jesus to get you. Now thirdly, out of all that, two truths about God, one now about us. Therefore, love others as He has loved us. That's verse 11. Since God so loved us, because He has loved us, as a consequence of His love for us, we also ought to love one another. We do that because it's the right response of gratitude. When Alice and I first got married, I was working in county council buildings up in the middle of the city here. And uh, I went home on the first day. Alison wasn't employed at that time. went home on the first day thinking, I wonder what my new gorgeous little wife will have made for an evening meal. Came in the door, fantastic smells, sat down, and there lift, the lid was lifted off a fantastic casserole. I was a great husband. In the sense, I said, fantastic casserole. Never tasted better casserole. Went to work the next day thinking, that was great. I wonder what it will be tonight. Came home, sat down, lid lift off it was. It was more casserole. And I was still pretty good as husband said. That was just fantastic as well. Day three, came home. You've got it. More casserole! I shall cut the story short. After two weeks of casserole, I did kind of say to Alison there would be other things I would enjoy as well. Oh, she said. She said she just seemed to like casserole so much. And I wanted to please you. Yeah, that's what love does. If you are encountered by love and respond in love, you want to please. God has loved the world so much He gave His Son. God is engaged in a mission of love to the world. And if you know that love, you know this God, you would want to please Him and be caught up in His mission to the world. Second, I guess, under this, I want to say, and this mission activity, therefore, is the most natural thing for Christians to be doing. Because when you became a Christian, you weren't just influenced in your thoughts, you weren't just given a new code by which to live, but you were changed on the inside. If anyone is in Christ, Paul wrote, he is a new creation. You were born again. And in particular, it's in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, you became a child of God. Now hang on to that phrase. You are a child of God. I've learned that one of the best ways to torture 14, 15 year olds is to point out to them that when they are the age that their parents are, they're going to look like them. This is bad news to 14 or 15 year olds, but it's essentially true. I know. I know that um, I pretty much lost as much hair as my father had at this stage. I'm pretty much the same height. I know I take exactly the same kind of shoes because genetically there is that similarity. It's not just physically, it's 
attitudinally, if you like. My, my father loved playing golf. So do I. My father hated filling out platforms, and so do I. My father was fiercely proud to be Scottish, and so am I. My father was desperately stubborn, and I'm determined about things in life. Like father, like son. Okay? Heavenly Father, so shall his children be like him. And God has loved the world to the point of laying down all for the world. And if we know this God and we are a child of that God and if His Holy Spirit lives in us, then how can we be different? And indeed, if you have no compassion and no heart for the lost of this world, then frankly it's not fundamentally your attitude to the world I'm scared about. It's your relationship with God. Because remember what the rest of that verse 8 said that we began with. It says God is love. But what is it actually more fully saying? Whoever does not love doesn't know God. Because God is love. If you haven't got love, you clearly aren't related to God. Because if you were related to God, you would love. That's the logic. What I'm saying is that a compassion for the lost of the world and a desire to see them reached with the gospel and help to know and experience fullness of life in all those dimensions is the most natural thing for every child of God. Because that's what our Father is like. And thirdly, if you have love, it will mean engaging with the hearts of a broken world. That's what it is to love your neighbor. And I'm taking for granted the whole message of of what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan, that your neighbor is anyone of any background who happens to be in need. Well, it means, therefore, love means engaging with the hearts of a broken world. And easily we could try and walk away from the world and leave it to its pain, its misery and its lostness and just get on with enjoying our salvation. But you can't do that if God's love is in your heart. And friends, I need to tell you the world is a hurting, damaged and broken place. My first trip overseas when serving with BMS, it's been seven years now, was to Calcutta. And in the early evening with an Indian friend, I walked the streets of Kolkata and I watched the folk who lived on the pavements getting their babies ready, wrapping them round in sack-like material to lie to rest on the, on the cold pavement. I said to the Indian, when will these people have a proper home? He said, Alistair, in the sense you mean it, they'll never have a proper home. All of them were born here on the pavement. They'll always live here and before they're old, they'll die here on the pavement. And I went back that night to the nice villa in which I was staying. I wakened at three in the morning because the rain was lashing down, the wind was howling. And I was fine. And I knew they weren't fine. Because they'd nowhere to go. I had to lie there in the rain. Babies, toddlers, children, adults. Not many grandparents. And I thought, God did not mean his world to be like this. And we need to change it. I was in Congo last year and meeting there a a little boy with a a distended stomach brought in for emergency treatment almost certainly not now alive because his condition was too far gone and thinking whose fault is this? Is it the Congolese government that's too often enriched its own political members instead of caring for the people? Yes, it is their fault. Is it the fault of all the other nations that have raped and ravaged Congo in these last 30 years? Yes, 
it's also their fault. Is it the fault of his family who maybe could have done something earlier? Well, maybe it is also to some extent their fault. But I tell you whose fault it wasn't. The little boys. But he died. I guess. I don't know that. But I guess. He paid the price. But it wasn't his fault. And it shouldn't be like that. And the truth is, I could have made a difference. And we can make a difference to so many parts of the world. And if God's love is in our hearts, I believe we will. Who are we living for? For whose ends did God give you health and strength, talents and experience? a vision and a compassion for the world, in order that you would serve yourself. The Word of God says you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus said, unless you give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. He said, go sell your possessions and give them to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. These are not theories. This is how Christians live the challenge I leave with you then is to live it out. To let go of your life and really trust God. And it's scary and it's difficult. But frankly, if you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, in what sense are you a Christian? Let me finish with this. My daughter, Jude, not the one that nearly drowned in the pool, another one, just as that. My daughter Jude decided she would do a parachute jump for charity. Lots of people sponsored her to see her jump from several thousand feet up. And so she did. And she lived. And I said to her afterwards, were you frightened? To which she said, what's the effect of, don't be stupid, father. Of course I was frightened. She said, I've never been more terrified in my whole life. I said, when were you most frightened? She said, as I stood at the door of the plane. And she said, I knew that if I jumped, I couldn't go back. <laughs> True. But I could just stay where I was and say, no, I'm not doing it. And I'd be safe. And I wouldn't have done it. But if I stepped out, I wouldn't be able to change my mind afterwards. Friends, I don't know what kind of commitment you made to Christ. But frankly, it has to have been stepping through the door for whatever and wherever He wants you to be in the world. You can't stay in the plane and also skydive. You can't control your life and also have it surrendered to Jesus. Which will it be? How available, how given is your life?